Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16a. That means the first part of the verse, if you remember what that means. Philippians 2, verse 1 to 16a. And if it is your first time maybe um, in church, and this is your first experience of this kind of stuff, then Clive's going to come up in a minute and, and continue our vision series and explore something in the passage that we've looked at this morning because we believe this is God's love letter to us. And throughout it, we see human experience and how God has touched the lives of a community called the Israelites. And then we see the life of Jesus himself, God in flesh on this earth, working and dying for us. This is a story of how God loves us. Philippians 2, 1 to 16a. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in human appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Thank you, Russ. That fell flat, didn't it? Uh, I don't know if you started your new year with a sense of new vision. I hope you have, because we're in a month of vision here at Motley Baptist Church. Uh, and I gave out a teaser, teaser on the first Sunday that as you look at the wonderful piece of contemporary art behind me, a lot of uh, creative energy and effort went into that, you'll see a word within a word as the month unfolds. Are you starting to see it? Starting to see a word within a word? Uh, keep looking because next week that word should be even clearer. But you know one of the things about vision, and let me define vision for you, for me, certainly for Christians, a vision is God's picture of a preferred future. God's picture of a preferred future. Whether that's for your marriage, your relationship with God, your church, your career, uh, your studies, whatever it is, a vision is uh, God's picture of a preferred future. The way God wants it to be rather than the way it is. And have you ever heard the expression, if we keep doing what we've always done, we'll end up getting what we've always got? You heard that before? I'm surprised that many, many more people haven't. 
Well, actually, there's a bit of wisdom that's been around for a long time in the United States of America. And I've been thinking, and I've been praying for the United States of America because they had a, a presidential inauguration on Friday, and I watched that with great interest. And there's all kinds of positives about that, but there were great challenges the following day with uh, people taking the streets of the city, uh, at cities around the world. And we need to be praying for Donald Trump and the new team and that great states of America and politicians of every divide. We need to be praying for them. Um, because sometimes governments, whether American or in the UK or whatever, don't always lean into conventional wisdom. Our country was founded, in a sense, on the church, on the Christian faith and the church, and those were the values. But listen to a little bit of wisdom from some Native Americans. This came from the Dakota Indians, speaking on strategy, and we're looking at vision and strategy and values in this month of January. The tribal wisdom of the Dakota Indians was passed from generation to generation, and it said this, when you discover that you are riding a dead horse, best strategy is to dismount. Heard that one? Seems to make sense, doesn't it? But the problem is with governments, and you could even say businesses and churches, when they keep doing what they've always done, they keep getting what they've always got. Here's some things that people have come up with as alternatives to that Dakota Indian wisdom. If you're riding a dead horse, best strategy is to dismount. One, buy a stronger whip. Two, change riders. That's not going to work, is it? Three, appoint a committee to study the horse. That's a common one, isn't it? Four, arranging to visit other countries to see how other cultures ride dead horses. Okay, what about this one? Lowering the standards so that the dead horse can be included and recategorized. Six, reclassifying the dead horse as living impaired. How about that one? About seven, hiring outside contractors to ride the dead horse. Eight, harnessing several dead horses together to increase the overall speed. What about number nine? Providing additional funding and or training to increase the dead horse's performance. I could go on, but I won't read the rest. Here is the absolute tragedy. For churches in the West, that's what we keep doing. We keep trying to ride a dead horse. Not everybody, thank God that in churches in the West, are recognizing that there's no problem with Jesus, there's no problem with the Christian faith, just as Jesus promised, his kingdom influence continues to extend. Two-thirds of the world is exploding with church growth, church planting, people coming to faith in Christ. It is phenomenal, so do not be discouraged. But we've got to keep asking questions about whether we can do anything differently. Got to make sure we don't throw babies out with bathwater. But in the whole movement for fresh expressions of church, or the whole movement to, for churches to create missional communities that really engage with the society that they're serving, there's something we need to listen because otherwise we'll keep doing what is called attractional church. You just come and hear our pastor preach. You just come to us. Well, the problem is people don't just turn up very often. They do sometimes in this country because of its Christian heritage, but often they don't. So we have been investing in a whole year and looking at, and we're casting the vision in this month of January at the beginning of 2017, after a year in 2016 at looking at what we call whole life discipleship. What the church was commissioned by Jesus to do and should always have been doing, we need to re-emphasize that it's about making disciples, not people who come to hear more propositional truth. Now don't misunderstand me. 
This love letter from Ross, as he described it. This love letter from God, this propositional truth in here, when it gets into our head and into our heart, it transforms our lives. And as more lives are transformed, it transforms our society. Always has done. So we let go of propositional biblical truth, the love letter from God, at our peril. But at the heart of this written word, which is breathed out from God himself, is the living word, Jesus Christ. So whatever else this church is about, it's about that. Now I'm wondering, I know some of you don't like this, but just humor me, I'm your pastor. If I'm not your pastor yet, I'd love to meet you later, and then maybe next week you'll say this. But here is a statement, I'd love you to join in with me if you can. You see it behind me. This is, forget the the, the, the jingoistic language, mission statement, vision statement, I don't care. It's a sentence that captures what we're about as a church. So let's say it together. Following Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and others. And if you look at the call on that means, that's one of the marks of following Jesus in all of life. We'll grow in love for God and others. Let's say it again. Following Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and others. Proverbs 29 and 18 in the King James Version says, Without vision the people perish. In the New International Version it says that without revelation, revelation from God, people cast off restraint. They're not going God's direction, they're going any old direction. Without vision people perish. But what we need to remember is that vision without action, well that's just a dream. Action without vision, that just passes the time. But if we get vision with the right kind of action, that changes the world. And that brings us to a strategy. And next week, as you look at the image behind me, Ross will be unpacking this more. Three times next Sunday, just as I am speaking three times today. Next week, Ross will unpack the image that's behind me now. And it's about seeking new followers of Jesus supporting those new followers as they're on their journey and existing followers of Jesus and sending them. And again, if you'll join in, if we can kind of enact this, and I won't ruin the surprise that Ross has got for us next week. I did at the first service, but I won't ruin it now. He's going to put it to some music next week, and, and Ross and I are going to dance it, okay? So let's see if we can do this. Seeking. Come on, join in. Seeking. We're seeking new followers of Jesus. We're supporting followers of Jesus, and not just those on the mission field like the Muse are in China, like David and Alison Chute that are going to do a pastoral visit to in Papua New Guinea in March, like those in Nepal that we partner with, like those people we'll partner with in Mexico when our young people go out to build homes for the homeless this year. Not just them, but every one of us, each one of you, and me too, we are sent onto our front line. So let's do it again. We're going to go seeking for new disciples of Jesus. We're going to support disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and we're going to send followers of Jesus into this world. In a sense, that is our vision and that is our strategy. But you know, a vision without a strategy is a liability. That's just a dream. It doesn't change anything. But a vision with a strategy, that can change the world. And there's one guy that has at least changed a significant part of the world in California. You might have heard of a pastor, a Baptist pastor called Rick Warren. Rick Warren got this when he and one other family started a church that from the outset, they named it from the place it was, Saddleback Community. 
And Saddleback Church has grown from two families to thousands upon thousands. And Rick Warren wrote a book called Purpose Driven Church. He wrote another book called Purpose Driven Life. In fact, that's the first book that he wrote. And it has sold so many millions of copies around the world, translated into different languages, that he decided he would pay back his wages for 20-odd years. Don't hold your breath on that one for me, by the way. He paid back his wages for 20-odd years, and I think he now lives on the 10% on the tithe, and he gives the rest away. He's working in Africa and other countries with AIDS relief and that kind of thing. But Rick Warren's book, brilliant book, I would have just preferred a different title, but it's not for me to choose. And God has used it awesomely. This is the the title I would have preferred. Values Driven Church. Values Driven Life. Are you with me? Because a vision without a strategy is a liability, but a vision and a strategy without values that undergird it is is an equally a liability. So as we look at the vision of Muttley Baptist Church from the past, One statement that I've dug out, and I've got to be honest, I had to work really hard at this, but I honour all those who worked on it, previous pastors and elders and the whole church membership, but some of you will recognise this, a church church in the community, a church for the community. Do you remember that one? That was a good one, but here's an even older one. I just managed to find a couple of copies of this. Motley Baptist Church mission statement, it says, it says, we aim to live as radical disciples of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Amen. Absolutely agree. Our mission is both local and global, so immediate but elsewhere in the world. Wonderful. I agree. We seek to extend the kingdom of God through, and then we're moving towards a strategy. We seek to extend the kingdom of God through. And then it gives these wonderful five statements. Biblical teaching. Well, we're not letting go of that. Caring fellowship. Loving compassionately. So we're not letting go of that. Living worship. Vibrant worship. Not letting go of that. Ongoing evangelism. Absolutely. And practical service. Wonderful stuff. We build on the foundations that others others have laid. You might say, well, why do we need new stuff? Because if we keep doing what we've always done, we'll keep getting what we've always got. And that kind of evangelism and biblical teaching, which we'll never let go of, if people aren't there to hear it, because never have an encounter with a Christian who eventually does invite them to church, or to their small group, or to their home, then it's just kind of not working that way. I was at a a gathering of uh, the steering group for pastors of larger Baptist Union churches this week. I have the privilege of being on that from the beginning, of setting up a conference every year, and now we've got a networking day flowing out of it. And what our heart is, is not just to be big churches that grow even bigger. Our heart is to resource other churches, to be Antioch churches, to send people and to serve society and help our Baptist Union of Great Britain to be a missional movement. But I've got to tell you something sad. Where stats? Dependable from 2006 to 2014. There was a 9% decrease in the Baptist Union of Great Britain. 9% decrease. David Coffey, many of you know, he's a friend of mine. A wonderful Baptist leader. Was moderator here before Ross and I were inducted. David Coffey, and I studied his life and his ministry in depth at doctoral level. In his watch of 15 years as general secretary, he saw against all the trends of church decline, he saw an increase. He did stuff as a leader. He helped the missional movement to grow and buck the trends. But I've got to tell you, and this is no discredit to those who followed him, I'm not saying that, don't misunderstand me, but something has got to happen. 
because that, that decrease is even larger in other mainstream denominations. The only stream that is growing is the Pentecostals and the Free Church. What are they doing right? They're missional, they're Christ-centered, they're Christocentric, they are listening hard to the voice of God. One of the things in humility we've got to learn is how we do that. So the series following this one is called The Whisper of God. Have you ever wondered about those people who say, oh, I heard God say the other day and wondered why God never speaks to you? Have you ever wondered that? God speaks to us in many different ways, but we're investing in a series and in our small groups with quality resources in our small groups to look at something that Bill Hybels describes in this way, the power of a whisper, hearing God and having the guts to respond. That's what we need nowadays. So as we look at our attitudes, because today is about a vision that's undergirded by attitudes with love at the core, we come to this core text in Philippians 2, 1 to the first part of verse 16, and we are told that our attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. Now Paul is writing here to uh, Christians in a place called Philippi. He's been involved in the establishing of that church. It's a thriving church, but it's in a Roman colony And in that Roman colony, people are used to saying, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. And he challenges these people with something completely counter-cultural, something totally distinct. In an honor-shame culture where you all want to be honored and you all want to avoid shame and you all want to be like Caesar, ideally, he says you should be like a servant. You should be like Jesus. You should show humility. You should serve others. Let me just read these first five verses again for you that Ross read. Paul says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. The same love as Jesus. That's that sacrificial agape love that Ross spoke about last week. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. There you are, purpose-driven. Have the same purpose. Be one in spirit as the Holy Spirit touches you. And then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. He's saying this to a proud Roman colony, or at least the church within it. Humility is for the slaves. That's what they would have thought. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And verse 5 in Philippians 2 is a key verse. Your attitude, so I could say my attitude, our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then his writing flows into, if you've got a Bible open, it's indented like poetry, or like a hymn, or like a song, because almost certainly that's what it was. It's like the songs that Rachel and our worship team have been leading us in this morning. Ones that we know well, and for some of you perhaps not quite so well, but almost certainly this was a New Testament hymn or a song or a poem, something that was used in worship and significantly in worship of Jesus. And Paul draws on it to say, our attitude, your attitude, as Christians, our attitude's got to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that these are beautiful attitudes. Like the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. If you've got your Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus sits down on a mount 
mountain. That's why this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And when he saw the crowds, he sat down on this mountainside. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And all the hundreds of thousands of people, the hundreds and the thousands, literally, he fed these people with just a few loaves and fish. But there are thousands of them, and he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, here's a beautiful attitude, are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to tell them they'll be blessed when they're persecuted. Because all who ever came in the name of God were persecuted, like the prophets before Jesus. And he knew he was going to get crucified. So I don't expect people to stand up and applaud, but these beautiful attitudes, these beatitudes, you're blessed if you live them as a disciple, is the kind of stuff that Paul was getting at. We could use a language of core values if you want. If it's a problem, don't. We could talk about these things as exemplary behaviours to evidence in our lives. We're going to look at five of them in a little while. Just five words. We could look at them as traits or markers that make us not members. We could look at them as descriptors of us as whole life disciples, following Jesus in all of life, in the whole of life. You see, beliefs shape our attitudes. Beliefs shape our attitudes. You'll see an image behind me, I hope, that will help us to understand this. What you believe in your heart and your head, that's going to bring an effect or a feeling to the way you live. And the way you feel and the effects of those beliefs shape your behavioral intentions. It shapes the way you live out your life. What is underlying what we believe shapes the way we are. What is at our core and our heart? So as I come in a moment to these five words, and five is good because we can remember them by counting them on the fingers of one hand in front of our face. But before I come to them, let me say that, in a sense, to go back to an analogy I used in my early days as a pastor of this church, we should be a little bit like a stick of Scarborough rock. Now, rock, seaside rock, you know what I mean? That stuff that is virtually 100% sugar with a bit of stuff in to stick it together. It's often pink on the outside and white in the middle. And in Blackpool it says Blackpool. That's not as good as Scarborough which is in Yorkshire of course. It says Scarborough running right through it. And if you cut through that rock at any stage it still says Scarborough. For those of us who are whole life disciples of Jesus, if you cut through us, what are the words? Let's just suggest five words. What are the things that should mark us if we're going to be followers of Jesus in all of life, growing in love for God and others? What are the things that should mark us? Well, we get there. But you know, some people long for the values that we have, but they don't want the beliefs that go with it. You know that? I've met parent after parent who wants out recently last week, and I'm delighted to sign forms for people who want their children to be raised in a Christian environment. But Christian Foundation schools, they want a, a letter from a pastor sometimes. And when I was an atheist, that's one of the reasons that Jesus broke into my life. Because I went to see a vicar and said, will you sign the form? The previous vicar did, because we got married in his church. 
because that's why my mum wanted us to get married. But as a scientific atheist, I was being a complete hypocrite because I didn't have the underlying beliefs and I didn't really have all of the values. But I wanted them for my child. And this vicar said, well, I can't sign that. I said, why not? He said, well, you don't come to church. This is saying that you're a committed Christian. I said, okay, I'll come to church. Thinking, it's terrible, isn't it? Thinking, I'll go to church, get the vicar to sign and then leave. But the one spanner in the works says, while I'm going to that church, I met Jesus. Praise God. God works in all kinds of ways, doesn't he? But listen to Matthew Paris writing on Christmas Eve, December the 24th, in the Times, under the heading comment and this headline, This atheist believes in church and cram. What? That got my attention, so I wanted to know what Matthew Paris had written. His subtitle was this, Secular liberals may disagree, but Christianity's message of tolerance is why it remains the foundation of our culture. Wow. Now, there's a right-wing reaction to what's being called the liberal elite intelligentsia. Have you picked that up? There's a movement of right-wing populist politics that led us out of Europe, or intended to lead us out of Europe, that elected Donald Trump, etc., etc. I'm not making political value judgments. I did that a long time ago. didn't work, but I did it. But the point is this. There's a reaction both ways, and... Tragically, that can be divisive in nations and divisive in the world. But what Matthew Paris wanted is all the values of the church and the crown, which he openly acknowledges are the foundations for this country, the United Kingdom, but he doesn't want the beliefs. Let him speak for himself. He says this, he says, Although I'm not a Christian and have no doubt the whole faith is based on a tremendous misapprehension, I love the Christian religion. To some extent, the affection even many non-believers have for our own Church of England arises because in Britain, Christianity has been tamed and no longer feels like a threat to anyone. That's bad. Christianity is not tamed. If you know C.S. Lewis' writings, Aslan is not a tame liar. Thank you. Do I jump off a cliff at this moment or... Shout hallelujah. 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 Okay. Thanks for that. Completely lost where I was, but thanks anyway. Um, Christianity is being turned. It no longer feels like a threat to anyone. Yet I do think there's something more, something at its heart that is on the side of light. That something is Jesus. Wow. The brave, deluded man. That's what he writes who in his life, or in our subsequent interpretation of his life, and probably both, shone a beam in those human tendencies that will raise the condition of our species and bring human processes, progress, and most important, human happiness. I mean mercy, understanding, and the will to cooperate. Wow, it's powerful stuff. Of course, I do not believe whatsoever that Jesus was a deluded man. I'll come back to that. At the end of his article, Matthew Paris says this, This year has seemed to me to tilt the world somewhat away from those trying to keep people together and towards those who want to push us apart. I know which side I'm on. And if Crown and Church are there too, I'm not too stubborn to join them. And then he quotes John Betjeman, the poet. And is it true? That's John Betjeman. And is it true? This most tremendous tale of all, 
seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall. And then Matthew Parrish closes with this uh, couple of sentences. The poet does not answer the question. I am afraid it is not true, but only if it were. I would love an hour or two with Matthew Parrish. I would love it. I'm not being arrogant. He might completely reject what I've got to say, but I'd just love an hour with him to say, Matthew, I was where you were at till the age of 32. I saw the value of the crown and I saw the value of the church and I wanted that for my kids, but I'd never, ever believed it. And then I met this Jesus, who is not dead, Matthew. He's alive. Because as this chapter shows in Philippians 2, he was not only fully human and he was never deluded, the absolute opposite. He saw everything clearly the way it was. But he was not only fully human, he was fully God. What a vision we've got. See the word within the word? If you don't see it yet, you will next week. Just three letters, a three-letter word. Whatever else our vision is, it's got to be all about him. So as I move on and look at these values, we need right attitudes towards God, towards our sisters, towards our brothers, and towards others. Right attitudes towards God, our sisters, our brothers, and others who are not our sisters and brothers. We need to follow our beliefs with our values that shape our life. Now as we come to Philippians 2, let's go back there if you've got your Bible. And let me read again verses 9 to 11 for you. What Paul has written in the first part of his hymn or poem is this, that our attitude would be like Jesus because though he was in very nature God, he took the form of a servant. He came in human likeness and he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. He died on a cross, but as we know, he was resurrected, proving his deity because he said he would take up his life again. And then he says this, verse 9 to 11, Therefore, in the light of that, Father God, God exalted him, exalted Jesus, to the highest place, the highest place. Gave him, gave Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's Father and Son. Paul has already mentioned the Spirit who's revealed this to him. But if you know anything about the prophecy of Isaiah, you will know that Isaiah, and we're going to have a series in that this year in the evening, Isaiah has God saying this, there is no God but me, I am one God. And a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. This New Testament hymn proves exactly that the New Testament got that Jesus was not just a man and certainly wasn't deluded. He was a revelation of God to humanity. He was God in the flesh on earth. Wow! Someone say wow, for goodness sake. I don't care whether you say hallelujah or amen. I'll fall off the platform, go back on the platform. Let's just encourage each other. Now, I'm, thank you. I'm grateful, to one of my, I'm grateful to all of my elders, but I'm grateful to one of my elders who with passion challenged this first core value because of the core scripture that I use. The first core value has to be worship. Worshipping God in spirit and in truth. But the worship that God wants is the love from our heart from him, for him above all others. The whole law, the commandments, begins with 
There's no God but me. There's only one God. Worship no false gods. I am the only God to worship. And when Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 has been challenged strongly by the Sadducees and he silenced them, he is now challenged by a Pharisee, an expert in the law, who tests Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the summary of the law? What is the most important one? And knowing that the first one is love God above all gods, no false gods. There's only one God. Jesus says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on this. So let me tell you, I'm grateful for my brother who challenged me because we tussled and we came backwards and forwards. And you want elders that can do that. And it forced me to think hard about this. Why is this worship? Why did I feel led of the Spirit to choose these verses? I'll tell you why. Because the only thing I can give God is my love. The only thing I can give God is my love. And the only other gift I can give to my God is my freely chosen love for Him. Yes, enabled by His Spirit. But then, when I'm loving Him to do exactly what Jesus says, exactly what He has shown throughout the whole law, I've got to love my neighbor as myself. That's worship. Thank God for beautiful songs and hymns. Thank God for prayers. Thank God for music. Thank God for all the other ways we worship God. But to love God and our neighbor with everything we've got is at the heart of worship. The second one is humility. And you remember that verse 5 in Philippians 2. That our attitude should be exactly like Jesus, the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Listen to verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Listen to verse 6. Because verse 6 says that this one who is in very nature God didn't grasp after his deity, but he made himself nothing, and he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Kendrick, build a beautiful hymn on that, Graham Kendrick. To lay down my life as a ransom for many. When you and I demonstrate humility, which has shaped Western culture so we do not like arrogance anymore, the honor and shame culture has gone from the West. Maybe it's returning. But we're talking about a humility before God and man. And if this church is to become truly great in the eyes of God, we need to have that humility as a core value that marks us. You know, there's a language in Plymouth, some of you have heard it, of the big four. I've got to be honest, I don't like it. PCC, my friend Jeff Lee, pastor at from the Christian Centre. Joe Dent, my friend at St. Andrews. Dave Martin, my friend at Methodist Central Hall. And me and Ross here serving you at Motley Baptist. We're called the Big Four. Well, you know, we're still not as big as we were. And I don't want to boast so that I can say, what a big church we've got. I'm glad that the numbers have increased and I'm glad that we're growing and I'm glad that we're healthy. 
But as Ollie Ryder at St. Matthias just down the road reminded us when we gathered on Thursday night for the Christian Unity Service, he said the same thing that he said at his um, licensing, which I was present at when he came to St. Matthias, his Holy Trinity Brompton Church plant. Ollie Ryder has said this, I would love to see 10 churches in the center of this city or around this city with a thousand people each. And 10 with a thousand is 10,000. It still wouldn't touch the fact that Plymouth is a quarter of a million people. Are you with me? We've got to be humble, but we don't have to be like Uriah Heath. Oh, I'm ever so humble. I'm a worm and I can't achieve anything. No, I'm looking at men and women who have the Holy Spirit living in their hearts. Men and women who have gifts from God. Men and women who can change the world in the way a Wesley or a Wilberforce can change the world. In the way a Mother Teresa can change the world. In the way an Elizabeth Fry is on the five pound note can change the world. But we need to be people of vision. And you know what? We need to be authentic people. We need to be real. Steve, thank you for the reminder that you gave to the whole church about how we speak to each other. Authenticity. When we look at this in Ephesians, it's quite clear that at least one aspect of authenticity is speaking truthfully and being truthful with each other. Just look at Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 25. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you, each of you Christians, in Ephesus and at Motley Baptist Church. You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. And then if I had verse 15 that came before it, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. And if I add to that verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. With that brother elder, it happened to be a brother elder, I've got three sister elders now. But with that brother elder, if I just said, I completely disagree with you, I'm the senior pastor, that's the way it is, don't want to hear any more. That wouldn't have blessed that elder. But by listening in humility and being challenged to go back and why is he so passionate about that, came out a deeper understanding. Now I have to find out what he thinks after he's heard this message but came out a deeper understanding of why this value of worship, this value of humility, and this value of authenticity. Because as I've said to our elders, if we can't truly, authentically love each other, what on earth have we got to say to the church? And if the church, if we can't love each other, I don't mean live in each other's pockets, but if we can't love each other, what chance have we got of anyone out there believing that we might love them? Are you with me? A unifying sense of one purpose and one spirit, Paul says in Philippians. And you know this worship, when you come close to God, you're, you're put on your knees in humility. If you've got any sense of the holiness of God. And you've got to be authentic. So we've got to speak into each other's lives in genuine and real ways. Formal orderly cue to speak to me afterwards, but remember to speak to me in love. Remember to speak to me to build me up. And if that means something in my life needs tearing down, I'm up for that, honestly. Because I want to be more like Jesus next year than I am this year. Anyone else with me? 
And it will flow into compassion. You know, Mark 1, 41 simply says, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus says, I am willing. And he reached out and he touches a leper and immediately the leper's made clean. Rabbis aren't supposed to get within a mile of a leper, let alone touch them. It makes them unclean. Just like I made Jesus unclean when he hung on the cross with Clive's sin all over him. And yours. The bad stuff, the wrong stuff. Those of us who put our hands up and said, yeah, we've said stuff that hurts people, Steve. Jesus hung on that cross and he took all that rubbish from my life and yours. That's the gospel. But he defeated death, he defeated sickness, he defeated Satan. So in this life we can have a taste of heaven and into eternity we can be with him forever. Hallelujah. But if we don't show compassion the way Jesus showed compassion to that leper, listen to Philippians chapter 2 again and verse 2. If you've got any comfort from his love, Jesus' love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness, and here it is, and compassion, then make my joy complete and have the same love as Jesus. Wow. Wow. And then it's going to flow into service. Worship, humility, authenticity, compassion. Compassion and service. Those are the five core values that you're seeing unfolded behind me. And the service one, let me read from Romans 12, verse 4 to 13. Can we have the next couple of bullet points? Romans 12. Let me read this for you, folks. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let me pause there. We're going to have this series on listening to the power of a whisper, the whisper of God. We're going to, in our small groups, help to disciple and equip people to listen to the voice of God and have the courage to respond. Not everyone has the gift of prophecy, but we can all listen to God. He goes on that you should use that prophetic gift in a proportion to your faith. If it's serving, let that person serve. If it's teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let them give generously. If it's leadership, let them govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. We've all got different gifts. Every one of you out there has got at least one gift. I want to discover who's got the gift of healing. Who's got the gift of prophecy? Who's got the gift of generosity because you're a millionaire and we didn't know it and you've got the capacity to bless? Whatever your gift, whatever your capacity is in God, we're going to have a series on spiritual gifts and seeking them for the blessing of the church. We're committed to living out this vision. Supporting followers of Jesus. Seeking followers of Jesus. Sending followers of Jesus. But Romans 12, I stopped at verse 8. Verse 9 says this, Love must be sincere. Love's got to be sincere. So I move on to this aspect. Love has got to be at the core. Love has got to be at the core of our vision. In Colossians 3 and verse 14, we read, And over all these, all these beautiful virtues, all these beautiful characteristics that Paul writes about in Colossians 3, over all these put on love which binds them all together. Have a look at your hand in front of your face, will you? 
because I'm going to remind us that we've got five, well, if we all have five fingers, and I'm not being funny, some of us don't, um, we've all got um, different physical challenges and so on, and that might be one of yours, but we've got these fingers that we can count the, um, the core values on, but imagine before you look at the fingers and we start working at that, imagine that the fact there's a, a, little, a little telltale of your DNA here, it's your fingerprints. You've got unique DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, in every cell of your body except your red blood cells because they don't have a nucleus. Every nucleus of every other cell in your body carries a blueprint to make you. But even identical twins have unique fingerprints. Did you know that? Even identical twins with the same DNA in their bodies, they have unique fingerprints. So we're all unique but we've got something that's common, something that's shared in our human DNA, and something that's unique. Keep looking at your hand. I want you to imagine a cross-shaped nail mark in the center of the palm. That's the love of Christ that binds these values all together, demonstrated on the cross. Christ's nail-paced hand. And now, if you'll just work with me, worship, humility, authenticity, compassion, and service. Let's do it again together. Worship, humility, authenticity, compassion, and service. And when you've got all of those together, you've got a handle on the core values, on the beautiful attitudes, on the markers and evidences of what it means to be a Muckley Baptist Church whole life disciple. I'm nearly done. You'll be glad to know. I want to talk, in, as I draw to a close, about us adopting what I'd call an attitude of gratitude. If we're going to have beautiful attitudes, we need an attitude of gratitude towards Jesus, who has made it possible for us to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. But Paul adds a little challenge, and I want to add Paul's little challenge to us as a church today. The challenge is that we shine like stars. Let me read Philippians 2, 14, the first part of verse 16. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've, always, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God. Listen to this. Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like the stars in the universe. I'll pause there. Would you turn to the person either side of you? I know that some of you will find this uncomfortable. Just say, you're a star. Just tell them. You're a star. You're a star. Okay. Now... You know they're a star if they are holding on to and holding out the word of life. Because what is said here, that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like the universe as you hold out, or in the footnote, you hold on to the word of life. So as you hold on to the word of life, the love letter from heaven, and you deepen that transformation of your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, by allowing the renewal of your mind, being transformed through this word, and through the power of Jesus at work in your life, as you hold on to this word, 
you'll also be able to hold out this word to others. Hold out the word to others. So in Philippians, uh, sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, in your heart set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Hold on to the word of life, let it transform you. But when you're asked to give a reason for the hope that you have, when someone sees there's an attitude about you, there's a lifestyle about you, there's something distinctive about you, you're not like this crooked and depraved generation. When people ask you for the reason that you hope, the hope that you have to mix a couple of verses, hold out the word of life to them. Just tell them it's because of Jesus. Because I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Growing in love of God and love for others in all of my life. That's what I want to do. I want to follow Jesus in all of life. Growing in love of God and others. This is the last time I'll speak to you about vision at this service this month. Ross will finish off next week with the dancing or singing version of Seek, Support and Send. That's worth, he's saying he might not, he's checking me out now. But as I finish off my part of bringing this vision, I want to say tomorrow is my 62nd birthday. I know I don't, I know I don't look it. I, see, you know, life is bad when people applaud you because of your age. That, you know, that's, I feel 23 in here, but when I look in the mirror, I look 72 first thing on the morning, not 62. But I want to tell you this, however many years God in his grace gives me, that's what my life's going to be about. Following Jesus in every aspect of my life, in all of my life, and by his grace and by his power, growing in love for God, my heavenly Father, and love for others, including you, my brothers and sisters, and those beyond the church. And the rest of my life, I just want to see a lot more of those people beyond this church come to know that love for themselves too. You too? Let's stand together. I'm going to ask our musicians and singers to come back. Just look at the image behind me, please, one final time. I'm going to turn this into a prayer. Echo it in the silence of your heart. Father, we want to pray about this vision, this strategy, and these values for Motley Baptist Church. We want to thank you for the visions and the values that have been lived out in this church over almost 150 years. We'll celebrate that in 2019, Father. But Father, we want to be followers of your son Jesus, who seek out new followers of Jesus, who support followers of Jesus, and who are sent, every single one of us, into the world. We want to be followers of Jesus in all of our life, Father. Help us to that end, to grow in love for you through Jesus and love for others. Help us, Father, to live lives of worship in humility, with authenticity and compassion as we live fruitfully on our front lines in service to you, our God, and to others in the world. And this we pray for his glory alone. Amen. Thank you.